When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and in this episode we talk to a man who can define careers, make world champions, but also has some very difficult decisions to make too. Either way, meetings can't happen without a ref and we have one of the best in world speedway, SCB and FIM Speedway Grand Prix referee, Craig Ackroyd. My phone went, can you come back, we've got a problem. The problem was that footage had been picked up that Smarzik had worn the wrong suit and the process started of um, what to do. The rule book was fairly clear, well, not fairly clear, it was 100% clear that penalty was a fine and disqualification from the event. At that point, you've just got to do your job. That was the end of it, unfortunately. The 2023 Danish Speedway Grand Prix will live long in Craig Ackroyd's memory. More about that to come in a little while. We'll also talk about his journey from grass track to the ref's box. He wants to be a rider in his younger days and indeed was riding alongside the likes of Carl Stone here at Gary Stead and Gary Havelock. And we'll also talk about some of the quirks of the rule book as well. All on the way. So it's my great pleasure to welcome to Humans of Speedway, SCB and FIM referee, Craig Ackroyd. Welcome to Humans of Speedway, Craig. No problem. Thanks for asking me. It's uh, good to talk to you, Ian. Thank you. Well, great to have you on. Um, usually I start by saying, you know, how did you get involved in Speedway? But your dad, I think, are you the first father and son? No, because we've had Leon Flint and, uh, and Gary Flint on. But your dad has been a guest on Humans of Speedway before. Uh, your dad is Paul Ackroyd, who's now the uh, man in charge of the Speedway Ben Fund. But uh, your dad was, of course, a, a successful referee, and we've done an episode with him, and you can hear about his career in the in the sort of 70s, 80s, and 90s refereeing. So we uh, have a good idea of how you got involved in Speedway. So was that it then? Were you, were you dragged along by your dad, or, or did it go further back than that? That's what started. I mean, it started with um, both my grandparents were Speedway fans, and they took both my parents as it as it came to be um and then my dad like you said my dad was a referee um i rode junior grass track with um sort of a lot of people who went on to be speedway riders and that's what i had ambitions to do but um sadly i wasn't probably quite good enough to uh follow in the footsteps of some of the people who i used to race with um but back in the day the, the pool of talent was massive i mean um just from the club I rode at in Lancashire, we had sort of Andy Smith had just finished. Um, Gary Havelock was riding for that in that club. Um, Joe Screen, Carl Stone, yeah. and that, that was all you know, sort of top world class riders all came through within sort of a short space of time. But sadly, I wasn't one of them. Quite a, a rich time though, and you know, grass track was the initial 
sort of learning ground, wasn't it, for Speedway? And and you know, there's some some big what went on to be big names in the sport there at the time. That's that's it. I mean, and as well as those, there's you know a lot more sort of really good riders like um, you know Gary Stead, John Armstrong, um, people who had shorter careers, you know, Anthony Boyd, um, Richard Musson. The, the Stuart Robson, you know, another long-term rider, his brother Scott before was sort of before me. Um, so it's yeah, there's there's loads. The list was sort of endless, and that's sort of near enough where all British speedway riders came from at that time. And there's this misconception, perhaps, that referees have never ridden a speedway bike, and that can never be said for you. You have given it a go. You've thrown your leg over a bike. You've done some grass track. You've raced with Gary Havelock and Gary Stead and Carl Stoney in, in that era. So is there a, maybe a, an appreciation of that from riders that uh, they know that you, you understand what you're talking about a little bit from that point of view? Yeah, I think so. Maybe. And um, maybe it was the fact that I had the opportunity to start refereeing at quite a young age and these guys were racing and I'd, I'd known some of them since we were sort of six, seven years old. Um, so yeah, maybe the riding part, but sort of the respect comes from in anything you've got to earn it, haven't you? And, um, just having ridden a bike doesn't give you that respect. It's sort of doing the job and, and earning that doing the job as a referee and your dad was of course a referee as we've mentioned and so with that did you have a, a particular team that you uh, that you supported growing up or uh, or any any riders you idolized at that time I, I just about remember my dad was a Halifax fan and I remember going there sort of as a, a young child um, and then my dad started training to be a referee and became a referee latterly and so then my watching speedway was um, around the country at sort of every track. Um, so I'd, I'd never really had a club as that I was a supporter of. I was just a, a fan of the sport in general. Becoming a referee puts you in the spotlight, of course, and you went into this with your eyes open because you've seen what your dad's gone through. You know, he's refereed some big meetings, made some big calls, not always very popular either. Uh, times where he's been barricaded in the in the box or escorted out of the ground for his own safety. You knew what you were getting yourself into as well. And so was that ever a concern that, uh, you know, this uh, this doesn't necessarily make me the most popular person in a stadium every time? Yeah, I'd seen it. I mean, my, sort of my dad's era when he was refereeing in the um, in the 80s, he did some meetings, you know, where it was on World of Sport live on a Saturday afternoon and and the report of the meeting would be on the back page of the News of the World on the Sunday. So it was, you know, big stuff then. And um, so I did, yeah, I did know the um, some of the downsides. Um, but when you're at a young age, you sort of, you don't really think about it, do you? you just think, oh, yeah, that's fine. Thick skin, that's fine. <laughs> well, yeah, you certainly need skin like a rhino, I think, at times. Um, so you'd you'd given Speedway a crack, you'd done the grass track, and, and it was evident that you probably weren't going to match the likes of Carl Stonehewer, but um, then came along the opportunity to, to get into refereeing. So how did it start for you? Because I think for many fans, it's a bit of a, a mystery world, really. How do you uh, go about becoming a referee? Yeah, they were, they'd, they'd had a change at the Speedway Control Board, um, there's David Hughes is in charge and um, Graham Brody was working with him and they sort of moved on from sort of the old school era and um, they'd taken Graham Flint on as a referee a couple of years before and he was sort of, 
probably 15 to 20 years younger than most of the other referees and um and he'd done a good job and was well respected and so the the shift was to sort of look for some younger people who had sort of previously not been considered um so David Hughes asked me he said oh have you ever thought about doing it and I was like no not really and um I was sort of 22 then I was out of university just started working so life had changed and he said, well, you know, there is going to be interviews if you're interested. So um, I did an application, went for the interview, um, along with four or five others, was given the opportunity to start training. And that's where it started. Trained for two seasons before, after passing sort of three tests along the way and sort of various um, various probationary periods. And then you become... Uh, qualified as a referee and that's where it started did first first meetings at the end of the 99 season and then was fully on board the panel of referees for 2000 onwards and there you are a bona fide referee and it is a long process isn't it but part of that process is also you getting sort of dropped in at the deep end as well isn't it that you'll just get told right this is the meeting you're doing you're running this meeting now and uh, it's all over to you you've got nobody else to 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 hide behind can you take us back to that day starts it's sort of a build up you sort of um you're learning you go in with different referees going to different tracks you might take charge of some second half racing and then you take maybe some national league racing or conference league racing as it was um and then some meetings once the result isn't in doubt anymore sort of things where if it goes wrong it's not not quite so um important and then it does and then it moves to where you have to do you know, important match deciding races to, you know, be in a position where you can do that on your own when you've not got another referee sat there to, you know, sort of help and guide you. And obviously you start off fairly low level to, to keep you out of the spotlight, I suppose, and, and, and find your feet. But eventually you, you're going to start getting given some serious meetings, some big meetings where there is a bit more focus on you. And what would you class as your first big meeting in the spotlight well i'd say proper big matches i did the what was then the conference league riders final which was at rye house um it was the first sort of individual championship um i think i was in sort of um second year of refereeing and that sort of felt for me it it was a massive meeting for me it was the biggest thing i'd done um and it went well and i enjoyed it and then that moved on i think the year after that did um knockout cup final um, and then it sort of sort of gradually just moved on sort of the, the premier league riders championship maybe a knockout cup or a league deciding meeting in the top league and um and it just sort of gradually moved on from there and um yeah there is more pressure on some of those meetings but then it's um it's sort of putting that to the back of your mind and just doing the job exactly the same as what you would any other meeting and did you find that when you were the new kid on the block as a referee, you'd have experienced team managers, even team captains, getting on the phone, trying to put one on you, put you under a bit of pressure and maybe try and get you into a feeling that you owed them a decision later on and things like that? Yeah, 100%. I remember that 2000 season after about six weeks, I was... Um, I'd had a hard time. I was talking to people saying, well, I don't know if this is for me. You know, I'm getting 
flack and stick everywhere I go. It's, you know, people putting you under massive pressure, team managers ringing, you know, race after race. What have you done there? What have you done that? And, um, and people had said, no, just, they're just testing you. You knew, you know, they're seeing how far they can push you, um, stick to your gun, stand your ground, do your job. And eventually it'll just die off. People say, oh, actually, yeah, it, it, it's pointless. He's not going to change. And, um, and it did sort of go on from there. But there's, um, there's some strong characters. I mean, you know, characters like Eric Bucock as a team manager, he'd be, you know, England international rider, England team manager, World Cup team manager. And they so, say, you know, they're vastly experienced people. And I was sort of in my early 20s sort of thrust into sort of dealing with them, telling them what to do in some respects. And it's, it, yeah, it wasn't easy, but it, it turned a corner and um, sort of became enjoyable fairly quickly. I can imagine having a phone call from Eric Bucock at, at full whack down the phone is uh, it's quite something to behold. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he, he backs his corner 100%, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and once he thinks he's right, he's right in his mind. There's no, there's no change in it. Well, there's people like like, like pieces thoroughgood from the Lakeside or Arena Essex as, as it was, and I seem to have a run of sort of Arena Essex away from home. And he was, you know, he was a gay, he was a strong character, and testing to say the least. <laughs> mm, I imagine, I imagine. I, I was doing a commentary on BSN with uh, with Stuart Dixon actually, and he had spotted that it was a, a newer referee in one match we were doing, and I'm. He, he 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 did suggest. He said, "You know, if I was a team manager, I would be ringing that referee just to just to put a bit of doubt in his mind, and and maybe you might get something later on." And he's sort of nudging us, and he says, "Ah, oh, this is the sort of thing you got to do." And so that sort of stuff go, does go on. So that's where you've got to sort of put it to the back of your mind and just do do the job race by race, treat everyone the same, and uh, be fair. Not let that pressure, not let that second decision be clouded by or. Oh, I was having a hard time after one race. I was having a hard, even harder time after two races. You know, it's just, you know, like you say, it's just testing. It's, uh, they're doing their job. They're trying to gain any little advantage that they see that they might get. I guess one thing that's different from your dad's day now is, is social media. You you make a decision and everybody's got an opinion on it published online within seconds. And, you know, that's an extra element now that, that referees have to contend with where previously, of course, it didn't exist until 15 years ago or so. That's it. It's scrutinised. When I first started, I remember you, you, your decision was what people had seen in the stadium and then there was a little report in the Speedway Star the following Thursday, which was written by somebody from the home team generally. So if... The, if it had gone for the home team, you'd probably get a relatively good report. If it went against the home team, you'd get you'd get highly criticised, and that was sort of that was the end of it. Um, but now, like you say, it's um, the streaming. The streaming's you know excellent coverage from the likes of BSN. Um, but then there's other things. You know, people might video races on the phone, and then they put footage on social media, and like you say, discussion discussion. <laughs> spirals you know quickly after a meeting and it's um, it is completely different and your view is different from the tv cameras you're not always bang in line with the start gates due to the quirks of, of the stadium so just talk to us about that the difference in the different uh, refereeing boxes around the uh, around the various leagues yeah wolves birmingham not in line with the start some um 
I mean, it's it, this isn't a criticism. It's sadly a part of you know some a lot of tracks are not in their own stadium, so the, and that goes with the referee. The pits might not be the best that they could be. Some of the spectator facilities are not the best, and that follows on the referees' boxes sometimes not where they'd like them to be, but it's where they have to be. And um, yeah, it doesn't. You, you work with what you've got, but it's not always. Um, it's not always 100% how you'd like it, given the option. And you know, the layout of the controls is different. Where you where you have to sit and how you see a meeting is different. I mean, for example, in some of the boxes I've seen, you know, Oxford is is nice and high up with a what looks like a relatively simple control box. Edinburgh is is in a nice position, and like the controls are all like little like doorbell buttons almost. So a wide variety of, of controls to get to grips with. Yeah, that's it. They're different, and um, and the ones way behind glass, you have to. You, you have to turn the light off during the racing because otherwise the reflection reflects back in and you can't see. But then the other thing is the switch panel might be, you know, in darkness. And so you, you can't always, you've got to be sort of familiar with um, where the right buttons are going to be, but you don't want your hand sort of hovering over a red light waiting to stop a race too anxiously when you don't need to. So it's, yeah, it's tricky sometimes. Sheffield, for example, the... The control panels to the left of you, so you have to sort of stand looking out the window, but with your body twisted, with your arms the other way around to be able to get to the panel. But on the other hand, Sheffield, you're high up, the window's open, and you get a great view. So I'd always say, as a as a referee, I'd take that view over a, you know a little bit of trickiness in the panel being to the side of you. On the flip side, what is the dream box for you, the, the, the best place to referee a match from in this country? Um, I'd say in this country, I think Oxford at the minute's the best for me. You're high up, you get a good view. Um, I always prefer, personally, I prefer a box where the window opens. So I prefer the feel of, you know, you get the noise, you can hear the bikes, you can sort of you feel more part of it. Um there's some good boxes in some of the bigger stadiums, some Polish ones of good boxes, but you could be behind glass completely separated. And it, for me, it's just a personal feeling. I like it when you're sort of um, out in the open a bit more. Stoke, Stoke was always a good box. That was high up in the top of the stand, quite close, window open. That was a good one for me. Coventry are the same. Yeah, that'll be a good one to get back as well, fingers crossed, at some point. Um, what's the process then for a referee? Because obviously people will see you get into the box, might see you just walking around the pits beforehand or checking the air fences or, or things like that before a meeting begins. But it starts long before that, doesn't it? Just talk us through the, the amount of work that you need to do prior to uh, a standard meeting. Yeah, we get we get allocated um we get allocated our meetings in batches. So at the beginning of the season we get sort of March, April, May. And then during that period we get sort of June, June to August. But then they do change. You get rain offs, cancellations, um just general changes of fixtures. But once you know you're going somewhere, you sort of plan your um plan your working schedule around the fact you're going there that day. Um then in the build up to it, the teams get we have a dedicated website where where the home team having got the team lineup from the away team, he posts it on a website. And we access that and then we check that what they've put is correct. So you know, against their team declarations, 
um, any changes are, you know, fit with um, what you can do. Um, then we have sort of other other sort of things we have to check. Sort of injured riders has um, are they definitely injured? We get a list of that. Um, people who've had um, sort of concussion injuries, we might have to check that that they may be allowed back after a certain time or not allowed back after a certain amount of time. Uh, so you all the and then we fill in um, as you've seen for your BSM work. We fill in sort of an online scorecard. Um, we prepare that ready. Um, we print off all the documents that we might need for that specific meeting. You know, in in terms of like a track homologation certificate, which gives us um, the safety aspects and how the track should be laid out. And so we probably do an hour to two hours prep work, sort of in the days leading up to the meeting. That's a on top of ironing your shirt, cleaning your shoes. <laughs> and, and cleaning your shoes can be a big job, depending on when you, if you've been somewhere the night before. You know, some of those tracks, <laughs> it, it doesn't half stick. Yeah, it's like a clay one. You come out, you know, half a foot taller than what you were when you, when you set off, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, King's Lynn certainly sticks to your shoes. I can tell you that in personal experience. And so what time do you normally turn up for a meeting then? How long before tapes up are you there and, and in the stadium yeah we try and get there two hours before um the traveling's the traveling's become more of an issue over the last sort of period of years so um now you tend to be getting there more early because you've got to you've got to re- sort of expect that you're gonna get stuck in traffic and um sort of allow that extra time get there two hours before um usually first protocol is the home promoter make sure everything's all right with them, that you know, they've not had any issues with the track or the stadium and building up to it. Um, then you go into the box and do you sort of check the programme against all the pre, pre-work you've done. And then it's, it's sort of, you talk to the two team managers, make sure the teams that they're giving you are, you know, set of what's going to happen. Because with the way riders are now riding sort of seven days a week, some of them, it could be that they're giving you a team two days before, but a rider's got injured or something's happened the day before. So just make sure that's as it should be. And then it's um, and then it's your track inspection, which is matching the track to the homologation certificate, basically. So it's making sure the fence, the um, air fence, the panels, and it, everything is as it should be, um, which can share. I mean, especially some of the stadiums where, it's not their stadium and there's been dog racing or stock cars, things get moved and, you know, not necessarily put back in the same place as what, as what they should be. And um, a fresh pair of eyes walking around, looking at things can sometimes just see something that's, you know, been missed or just not obvious to everyone else. And so the meeting happens, uh, you, you do everything that you need to do and uh, hopefully it passes off all peacefully. What work is there then after a meeting for you to do? Yeah, we do sort of two reports. The first one is the match scorecard that gets sent off. Um, well, now with the new system that we used last year, it's sort of uh, you can do it live online, so it's there sort of straight away. And then we do um, a meeting report, which sort of just gives any details of anything else checks that have been carried out we usually do carburetor checks um if you're on a meeting it could be it's the list of all the other um all the other officials which is sort of our 
our pre-meeting job is just bringing everyone together. You know, the, the technical officer, the medical officer, the clerk of the course, and it's and then the meeting report just puts down any information that's sort of been derived by what people have done on the night. We I know that on BSN we spoke to uh, Wendy at uh, Kings Lynn Machine Examiner, and we asked her about has she found anything unusual in a bike when she's been inspecting them and and i think the she she'd once found a load of bags of haribo inside a bag <laughs> have, have there been sort of strange things sort of crop up on bikes that that uh, shouldn't ordinarily be there <laughs> not as strange as that but um, it's um no i mean wendy's wendy's a great uh, machine examiner and she also does sort of fim environmental work and clark of the course work so she is good and if anyone was going to spot Harry Bow in a bike, it'd be Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, most of the time it's um, it's safety checks more than anything. The um, it, it, fairness, as in that nobody's cheating with any illegal sort of parts to the bike or modifications. But most of the time, it's safety-wise. It's you know a rider could have had a, a, a crash and something's cracked or loose or a spoke's missing in the wheel and it's genuine things that they've not spotted or haven't picked up on and the, the machine examiner sort of makes makes them aware of it and makes the bike safe again. This is Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and that is Craig Ackroyd, a British and FIM referee. Craig is one of the few referees on the Speedway Grand Prix circuit as well and has been for a number of years. We'll find out how he got there and what it's like when you have to exclude Bartosz Schmarschlik, not just from a race, from an entire meeting, on the way in the next part of Humans of Speedway. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. There's more places than ever that you can listen to it, not just Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now available on YouTube as well, purely as an audio podcast. So check us out on there. Follow it on all of them so you don't miss any new episodes as they come along. The episode after this is going to be epic. You don't want to miss that. We'll be chatting with one of the greatest riders of all time, Hans Nielsen will be on the podcast in the next episode. Right now, though, we're talking about life in the referee's box with British and FIM referee Craig Ackroyd. Craig, we've talked about uh, how you got into things in, in British Speedway and your sort of general progression there. Moving up to the very top level, though, how did that come about to uh, get the opportunity to become a referee on the Grand Prix series? It started in Britain, as we've said, and that sort of... Um moved on and I was given the opportunity to do more sort of what you would say prestigious meetings and it, it elite league riders final league deciders and it and then an opportunity came where the FIM said they needed more referees um and Britain said you could apply and the criteria was you had to have refereed minimum of five full seasons in Britain um and then you could write a written application which um so I think I can't remember how many people applied, but a few of us fit the criteria and wanted to do it. Some people didn't want to. Um, we had a written application, which led to then an interview in Britain. Um, and then there was um, to it myself and Jim Lawrence, who, who after the interview in Britain, were given the opportunity to go to an FIM seminar, which was then um, sort of a, a full seminar of the rules and regulations for the FIM and then an exam at the end of it 
um, we both passed passed the exam and were given an FIM license then. Um, but that year, the meetings had already been allocated, so sort of nothing happened then for nearly 12 months. Uh, then the following season, we were both given um, one meeting each, which was sort of, you know, a, a tester. I think my, mine was um, a team under 21 qualifying round. So what you'd say, you know, at that point, it was, you know, to me, it was massive, you know, to, to referee a meeting in another country was, you know, dreams. Um, but you would say it was, you know, FIM-wise, a relatively low-key meeting, um, a way of getting into the processes and the way it works and working with the jury system. Um, then that moved on the year after that. I did sort of a two or three meetings, you know, maybe an under-21 second qualifying stage round. Um, and then that built up to, you know, a, a GP early qualifying round, um, maybe. And then I think I did, um, by 2008, I did the under-21 fight world final, which was when it was still a one-off final. Um, and then a couple of years after, I did the GP challenge. And um, in 2011, I was um, allocated the World Cup and did that and then moved on to the GPs from there. So it was the same as in British Speedway. It was sort of a gradual a gradual build-up of, um, you know, stepping stones, so to speak, through the ladder of the way the meetings are. But relatively quickly, really, you've gone from, you know, refereeing at Buxton to now refereeing world championship events. You know, that's a different level of gravy you're dealing with there, Craig. It is, and it's... Um, it's a strange feeling because until you've until you do it, you don't really know how you're going to feel until you're in in the position of sat in the box about to press the tapes for the first race. You don't think, you, but it, to me, perhaps I was lucky. I, lucky I can sort of switch off from some of it and just it's just the same job. The job's the same. Um, whether it is a world championship GP round, that those individual riders in that race, it means just the same to them. And it's just as important to, you know, give them the fair opportunity on the track. Um, yeah, it's in terms of everybody else and it is, you know, bigger and more important, but for the individual rider in the race, it means the same, you know, if, if they're exc- excluded what they say unfairly, they're still just as upset and, you know, it's, the process is the same. And in some ways, though, was it like going back to the beginning again where you're in the box, you've got some very experienced riders in front of you? I don't know, the likes of Nicky Pedersen, for example, just to, to use one. You know, they're on the phone. They know that they can give you a bit of a hard time, put you under a bit of pressure, try and make you think twice before making a decision. Does it, does it go back to that era again? Yeah, definitely. The first, um, yeah, Nicky. Nicky's a carrot. Nick, Nicky's great. You know, he's a great guy. I get on well with him. But yeah, when he's when the red mist descends and he thinks he's been wronged, he doesn't hold back. And that's um, fair to say. Jason Crump again, Jason's, you know, he's a, a stern character when he's in race mode. And if he thinks you've treated him unfairly, he's, he, yeah, he, he won't hold back at telling you that. Um, most riders, you know, when, if they end up on the phone to you, it's because in that, in that instance, they think you've made the wrong decision and they've been, you know, mistreated and so they're never going to be 
never going to be happy. Um, and that filters down to sort of, you know, national league level. It could be, could be different. You know, if you hit the track, it hurts. However tough the riders are, you know, it does hurt. So all of a sudden they perhaps bash themselves around a bit. National league rider, their thought process meaning, you know, they might have caused 500 pound or a thousand pounds worth of damage to a bike. So there could be, that could be the, you know, the, the trigger to be unhappy. Um, GP, it's more the, the value of the bike being bent is sort of different. It's more the lack, the loss of points that will make them unhappy. But yeah, you get some, um, once they're on the phone, it's not normally to say, oh, thanks very much. I'm, you know, really enjoyed that. It's not, it's normally to lodge a certain degree of displeasure. Is it in some ways, I want to say easier, but you've got the backup with, say, TV replays and things like that that you can refer to? Yeah, the um, the, the replays, um, they, they certainly do help. And it and it's um, in tough or tricky situations, it, it gives you, you know, more perspective on it. But you do have to be careful because, you know, watching um, the speed of the sport and the way it is and the, the contact of the rider watching a slow motion replay you know zoomed right in is not always how it how it sort of has taken place in real time and um quite often sometimes you know a replay might show or a rider's been clipped you know the the back wheels clipped the front wheel and knocked him off and it might show that from three different angles but if you rewind by 50 you know five seconds 15 meters down the track it could be that the guy on the outside's cut right in and sort of initiated that contact and um so it's good to use the replays but you've got to look at you know the reality and the build-up of the situation as well not just the outcome of it what what for you are the biggest calls that you've had to preside over at you know the top level of speedway one that's sort of an early one was the first World Cup I did, and there was a close finish in um, the net. It was in the old format where it was um, 25 heats, and it was heat 24, and there was a close finish between second and third. But that one point was sort of made it sort of the, the gap was one point going into the last race. Um, so that was a big one, but it wasn't seen for me that was massive because it was sort of match deciding almost. But it didn't. It wasn't match deciding because it wasn't a crash or there was no controversy about it. Um, in terms of incidents, probably the biggest ones being the Holder Pedersen um, first bend incident, which was basically the last round at Torren, and it was a deciding, you know, deciding between those two riders. Um, had Holder been disqualified, it would have given Pedersen a, you know, a big chance to go on and. Um, beat him and win the world championship so that was that was probably in terms of the outcome was um was one of the biggest ones but again you go with what you think's right and uh, that's all you can do i guess there must be something where you've you know you've pressed that button or whatever you did you know to exclude that rider or you've 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 announced that that rider is out and there must be that flash through your mind maybe that have i done the right thing but obviously you have to back yourself don't you yeah, I mean, I, I, um, my thought process is, I mean, we still referee more meetings without replays than what we do with. So my initial, I always make a decision based on what I've seen in real time, as I normally would, write it on my pad, 
and I work on the basis that if I turn around to watch a replay and they say, oh, sorry, there isn't any, I work on the fact that I've got a decision. And then once the replays come, I kind of use them to back up what I've seen in real time almost. And then if you watch an angle and it says, oh, no, actually that looks differently, so then I might sort of watch a different angle and say, oh, actually, yeah, every angle shows it a different way to what I saw the first time or two out of three show the same the same as what I thought. You know, it's just a an, obs- an obscure angle that makes it look a little bit different. So it's, yeah, sort of using a combined combined picture to put together what, what you're going to do. And so that's what you do then. You, you, you write it down straight away as soon as you, you know, before you forget. And you've got that to refer to then, because I guess that's the thing in the intervening moments, you could have a lot going on in your mind. Yeah, that's it. And if you, I always, you've seen that in real time. It's how it's happened in, you know, normal speed, real time view. And, um, and then you're not just relying on the, um, on the replay. Sometimes, I mean, the replays are great and they do show when you're a bit unsure. I'm not quite sure whether, you know, he went underneath him, was there any contact or, was the not, but then you've got that in your mind and you're already deciding, yes, if there was contact, I'm excluding the rider on the inside. If there was no contact, I'm excluding the rider on the outside. And it's, you know, and you're just using the replay to just verify whether you, you know, whether there was contact or not. Um, so like I say, it's a mixture of putting it together, both sort of, both parts of it. I was looking at some of the fixtures that you've done over this last season and um, Voyans uh, <laughs> certainly was a, a tasty weekend for you, <laughs> to say the least. Um, this was the fixture, of course, where, you know, world champion elect, you know, Bartosz Schmarschlik was there for his, his victory parade almost. And, and, and then things changed pretty quickly, didn't they? Yeah, it was a busy weekend. We'd already had SGP2 final round on the Friday and that had gone. Um, Cherniak had sort of, um, he nearly blew it. He sort of um, let his nerves get the better of him and touched the tapes in his semi-final ride. And that nearly gave the chance to somebody else. Um, and it, it that, was, that was already quite dramatic the night before. And then we arrived for... GP on the Saturday um, undertook qualifying and practice you know no problem everything ran smoothly and nobody thought anything of it um, it's a busy it's a full-on day and um, I normally only get about an hour after qualifying and the draw and everything before you start the work for the meeting so I usually go for you know a bit of a bit of a walk or fresh air or just get away for a you know from everybody for a while a bit about five minutes into that my phone went can you come back we've got a problem and um the, the problem was that footage had been picked up that smarzik had worn the wrong suit so um everyone had genuinely not nobody had spotted it during the practice during the qualifying not one person phil morris was there in the pits he'd not seen it um my job during it in the box, I look at as they come out on track. I sort of verify the numbers on the back of them because that's to make sure that the right riders are in that qualifying run, and then they just go around and you think nothing more of it. Um, so once you saw it, it was quite surprised, and then the uh, yeah, then the process started of um, what to do. Um, the rule book was fairly 
clear, well, not fairly clear, it was 100% clear that the penalty was a fine and disqualification from the event. Um, I think that had been, it was a, a strong penalty, but it had been put in to prevent people from maybe doing it for commercial gain, you know, using their own suits rather than the one that um, had the, the SGP sponsor, the flag and all the other information it should have on as to where somebody could wear, you know, a fully sponsored suit and it, take a small fine. The penalty had to be severe to sort of discourage it. But where the rules, um, they didn't vary. They didn't vary between an accident where somebody did it mistakenly to where somebody did it purposely. It was just, you know, if you've worn the suit, this is the penalty. Um, so, yeah, it was um, it was a difficult day and it wasn't very nice, to be honest. It, it was not everybody who was involved in it. It wasn't the outcome that they wanted, but you're there to do a job and you're not there to sort of um, change the rules or decide on the rules at that point. You've just got to do your job. And that, that was the end of it, unfortunately. And this decision was made by the well, the FAM jury. Of course, you would be involved in that. But it, what is the process then? Is that like a vote? Is that uh, how do you come to that decision if it's a number of people involved? Yeah, there's jury for um, the jury for a Grand Prix is um, four people. So it's um, the jury president is usually from a country or federation. Then um, there's a local representative from. So in this case, from the Danish Federation, myself as the referee and Phil Morris as the um, race director. So it's not, it's to give, um, you know, a balanced view and different opinions on things that crop up. Um, so in this case, we we spoke to Bartosz, you know, and said, this is what's, this is what's happened. This is what could happen. And he gave, you know, we had sort of a, the processes to have a hearing and then, um, he has the opportunity to give his side of the story. Um, then we go away as the jury and sit, preside over the rules and um, and have to come up with the outcome. And in this case, the outcome was sort of fixed. The rule book was, the rule book was fixed. The penalty was fixed and there was no, whatever your, any personal thoughts from anyone, there, there was no other way around it. And what was his reaction then? In all honesty, he's... he's is more professional than what I would have thought a lot of people could have been in that situation. I mean, the, 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 what it could happen, you know, to be thrown out of a whole round, you know, when he's sort of, like you say, world champion elect almost, um, he was unhappy. He was, um, very unhappy, but unhappy with the situation. He was still, um, you know, relatively polite, you know, he did his job and he came and discussed it with us. But yeah, he, he wasn't happy, but he, he, he was unhappy with the situation, not not any people or anything anybody had done. I think he just couldn't actually believe what had happened or was happening. Um, I think that shows because, and actually afterwards, um, you know, he went away, he accepted it. He didn't appear, appeal against it. He just said, no, you know, the mistakes happened um, and I've took my penalty and, you know, it's, I just need to go on and win in Torren now, you know, and put it to bed almost, which he, which he did, which, you know. Yeah. As it goes, it could have, it could have been a lot worse, couldn't it? But um, 
On the subject of Grand Prix, you mentioned there, Phil, you're not alone, are you? You have this race director. So how does the race director at an event like that interact with the referee? Are you in constant contact with Phil? And, and what does that entail? Uh, you've got headphones to Phil permanently through the meeting. So you've got headphones and microphones to speak to him. Um, so it's a, it's a great link, to be honest. He's in the pits. He can... Um, his... I mean, Phil's role with the timing is making it run smoothly for, you know, the event in the stadium but and for the TV show, which is, you know, being filmed filmed once but then split into sort of, you know, multinational broadcasts. So um, so his job is putting that together in a, you know, a timely manner. So the, um, the gaps between the races are fairly quick, sort of... Um, the riders will come off the track at the end of the race and immediately they've cleared the track. The next riders will be pushed off for the next race. So my job is, you know, it's quicker. I, I kind of write down on a pad, red, blue, white, yellow, in letters of the result of that race. And then I have to leave it at that, watch him go off the track, two minutes on for the next race, set the clock going. And then I go back to my computer for um, filling in the proper score sheet. Um, by which time the riders are at the start. And um, in that period of time, um, Kelvin's, you know, they've shown the result on the screen. They've shown a couple of laps replay of um, of that previous race. And then, you, you know, it's, it's the same all the time. Then it pans back to the start line and it's got the block across the bottom with um, who's in the next race, what points they've got, etc. And it's sort of, should run fairly smoothly um phil's yeah phil's um where the communication tends to come in is if there's a delay or a stoppage or anything happens and you can um he can sort of advise me and say yeah you know his bike's damaged we're just going to give him this amount of time the riders getting checked up or there might be a track problem you know fence panel needs replacing and then it's you know he can it can advise fairly quickly so that when we can go, we can go, you know, as soon as possible without, you know, minimal delay. The starts in a Grand Prix are different. They, there is a computer system that uh, decides when the tapes are going to rise. Um, this is something that's coming to British Speedway as well in 2024. So just explain to us how that works and, and what your experience is of having used it on the Grand Prix series. Yeah, it's a random timed box so basically you press um you press one button which activates the green light and then after um a random period of time um, between two set points then the tapes go up automatically on their own um so it is different it's it was different difficult uh in a way to sort of just get used to it to start with but personally i think it's had a positive um a positive outcome i think it's moved away from because because the gaps vary they don't the, the variation when you time it it's a reasonable variation but it's not ridiculous um but it moves away from the riders being able to anticipate the tapes going up and now it's sort of it starts at grand prix more favored to 
you know the people who've got the best reactions rather the best rather than the best anticipation and riders have long tried to anticipate the referee is this something that you notice as a referee you can sort of work out when when riders have have rumbled the pattern of uh, of play if you like we can see it in british racing sometimes the variation of the starts is not massive so riders can sort of um anticipate you know the count yeah it's going to go and the they're anticipating, which is where we get the, um, oh, he's made a perfect start. You know, he's gone exactly as the tapes go up. And, um, and that's where it's a bit, it's difficult as a referee sometimes to sort of judge whether he's uh, a rider's, is it a perfect start? Have they made a lightning reaction or have they just gambled and gone and got it spot on? And it's, and it's yeah, it's difficult. Which if they get it spot on, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just moving if you move before the tapes go, that's when you should be brought back. And one thing that people have been you know, long asked about is that rule about movement. What what constitutes movement? What, what is the point between letting it go and and bringing a you know the riders back to the tapes again because of uh, an unsatisfactory start? Yeah, they should be totally still, but it's also it's looking. You know, if somebody moves, but then the disadvantage himself. You should you should allow that to. To carry on really you know because it's not fair in the other three um but then you look in did their movement if they're in gate one and there's somebody in gate two did they disadvantage themselves and the person in gate two as well um so it's it and this is watching sort of all four riders at racing speed all at the same time so we i think we try and get it right um i've had ones that i've done where i've thought I thought somebody's moved, you know, too early. They've shot out half a bite length in front of everybody else. Um, when I've watched all four at racing speed, that's how it looked. When I've seen a replay slowed down, focused on one rider on his, on his own, it might look differently. But that's, um, yeah, it's, it's tricky sometimes. I think in terms of what what spectators want, which is, you know, less restarts, people not brought back if they've just made it we want the same and um, it's what we strive for and when we get it wrong when we pull somebody back unfairly it's it, it, it is that it's a mistake it's what you've seen at racing speed and I think uh, I think the amount of times that happened is happens is relatively minimal compared to the number of races that take place is there a, an argument these days to have more than one referee at a meeting, certainly the bigger ones, you know, so you've got an extra pair of eyes and ears elsewhere in the stadium or uh, even if it's just alongside you to, to help make some of these big calls. Yeah, it, could, it can be. Um, I mean, you could have it at the start. You could say both of you watch the start. If um, both one one referee watches the outside two, one referee watches the inside two, you're, you're only watching two instead of four. It, it narrows the chance for missing something you could say um put a referee on the third bend where it's tricky to see you know it's the furthest point away for a referee to see if somebody dives up the inside is the contact or not um but if you put somebody on the third bend then there could be a crash on the first on the second bend and you know they can't see that so it's it's how far you go and i think in speedway the um obviously the finances are you know Putting extra people in every position is not always, um, it's not viable all the time. And I, 
if we look at VAR in football, I mean, they've got kind of unlimited finance to produce anything they want to get the right decision. There's, I don't know how many people sit in Stockley Park in the in the studio, but it seems a lot. And and then the referee, then the screen, and the two linesmen, and the fourth official, and and they still get decisions wrong and get criticised for certain things. So. So yeah, maybe there is an argument for that, but I don't think it's the the be all and end all. Something we see in in rugby, we see it in NFL, plenty of other sports. We hear the referee speak, and quite often you're in a box next to somebody with a microphone. Do you think sometimes it would help to have the referee come on the on the mic and and just explain a, a decision sometimes, and that might sort of you know help with this criticism that potentially you might get. Yeah, I think sometimes it would it would help, um, especially when there's some you know we have got some complicated rules in speedway, and sometimes it is just a genuine people. Oh, why has that happened? And it's if you could explain, it would clear it up or clarify it, um, or explaining how you've seen a decision. It. it it could, you know, sort of give an extra slant on it that people might know. Oh, actually, yeah, it's not quite as clear cut as a as I first thought. But then they might revert back to, oh, yeah, but that's my home rider. I didn't want him excluded. Same as what I am when I'm at football and <laughs> and I'm shouting at the referee. A rule that I think sometimes catches people out is the one about who's in front, and you have a coming together and people will say, well, he was in front, so therefore, you know, he can't be excluded. It's got to be the other guy. Can you explain that to us? Because sometimes these decisions don't go the way that of, of the rider in front and just to explain that scenario. Yeah, it's um, this who's in front is sort of a bit of a... It, it's, it's not sort of as clear-cut as well. You can't dive up the inside of somebody and be half a wheel length in front and so I was in front. Um, in front to me is when you're in front, a bite length in front, clear. If you move completely to the left or completely to the right, you wouldn't touch the rider behind you. If you're half a wheel length or half a bite length in front, you're not past your half past. So then it's um, you can't say you're in front. Um, so it's it's then sort of splitting splitting that decision down as to um, who's at fault. Um, the sort of the the way it sort of should go is you know if somebody if the race is stopped because there's been a crash, you you exclude the primary cause of the race stoppage. So either that's the rider who's fallen, so they've caused the race to be stopped by falling off, or the person, somebody else, has caused them to fall off, as in ran into them or foul riding or done something that has made them fall off, which then means that rider should be excluded. So, it's, um, so yeah, we do get... It, it's tricky and we get a lot of what we would say is a 50-50 decision and it's up to us to sort of split it down to be 60-40 or sometimes even 49-51 in favour of one or the other. You have to make a call, some draw the line somewhere. And, and similarly, we have first spend bunching. Questions about this. Is that an actual rule that's in the book or is that what, you know a, a term that's come in and, and that's sort of what you call it and it's your... Um, your sort of interpretation and, and where does first bend bunching end? It's not a written rule, first bend bunching. Um, what we have is unsatisfactory start. So you could say the the start to the race is unsatisfactory because all four riders are going for the same 
piece of track and there's contact and um, somebody falls or somebody's, um, you know, not given a fair opportunity. Um, you would say that lasts till sort of the apex of the first bend. Um, after that, you're into the second bend and the rest of the lap and and that's, you're in the territory of uh, disqualifying somebody. Um, you, you often get, you get a fall on the second bend, which is initiated from contact going into the first bend and then they eventually fall off part way around but that's kind of as far as it goes and how much control do you have over the flow of a meeting um obviously we've seen many meetings where the home side is down by 10 points after the first three or four heats and the tractor comes out for 20 minutes i mean uh, how does that work it's um again it's difficult um the home promotion is sort of it at liberty to do track preparation as they see fit um we have set grading breaks in the premiership but only only sort of when they take place not how long they take place for um it's difficult quite often as referees we see the tractors out where as frustrated as anybody else for it's been out too long come on you phone down you speak to the clerk of the course and they'll they'll go out onto the track tell him and by which time sadly the time that you've you know they've used the time they want anyway by then um it's so we do try and have a control over the the length of the meeting but there are certain things where it's it's not always as easy as what it seems to sort of suddenly stop a tractor and get them off as quick as what we want and similarly getting meetings through quicker now we saw in the you know the grand final this year you know the rain's coming down and two minutes was on as soon as the bikes uh, pretty much crossed the finish line weren't they yeah yeah i mean um it was at sheffield the um the track sort of lends itself to you can run quite fast there because the rise is straight out from the pits on the fourth bend and sort of almost straight to the start line um I had the knockout cup final there as well against Ipswich as well, which was again similarly running um, rainy conditions throughout, and everybody everybody just kept coming out fast, and uh, we got through that meeting in in full as well. If everybody plays the part, you can you can run a meeting fast and. Yeah, if you want, if they need to. And and one one sort of overall question: How do you become a referee then in in this current moment? You know, if somebody wanted to be a referee, uh, I think you probably got to get in in touch with Neil Vatcher. I, I guess would be one step, wouldn't it? But uh, what's the process? Yeah, process? Neil Vatcher through the SCB. He's um, he would take the periodically they have applications. So the last sort of intake was before COVID, um, where we've sort of had. Uh, trainee st- trainee referees started their training was sort of punctuated a little bit with covid um but we've now had three three new referees through um it's um sadly at the minute there's not i don't think they're looking for anybody new purely because there's, there's sort of been a reduction in the number of tracks and sort of therefore a reduction in the number of meetings and um where we would have sort of natural um, reduction where people retire or give up or just stop for whatever reason. Um, They've not needed replacing quite so quickly because there's been less meetings that take place. But yeah, when we do need more, it's Neil Vatcher, SCB, and um, they'd usually do a bit of an interview interview and uh, discussion. And then it's two years of... uh, two years of on-the-job training. 
Yeah, and and from there it's uh, it's up to you to climb the ladder, isn't it? One one other thing you do also do, being an FIM referee, and this is a bit hardcore. You also do ice speedway as well, which is uh, <laughs> another another notch up, I think. Yeah, once once you're um, once you're refereeing FIM FIM meetings, you're sort of refere- refereeing the track racing commission, which covers uh, long track grass track um sidecars ice racing flat track as well as speedway um so yeah ice racing something i've done quite a bit of and i really enjoy to be honest it's um it's different the characters are different the racing's different but it's um yeah it's the scary sometimes the riders are you know so tough and the uh yeah the outcomes can be not so good with the nature of the spikes Yes, I think if Speedway was bonkers enough, uh, doing it on ice with spikes in the tyres is just that extra 10% uh, further up the chain, isn't it? Yeah, the tough guys, definitely. When you stand in a rider's briefing with 16 ice racing riders, they are are tough guys, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) not to be messed with. (laughs) Not at at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, but look, thanks for for explaining uh, that side of of refereeing. I'm sure that's useful to, to many fans as well. But I think what we're getting overall from you it's just that instinct of fairness isn't it and 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 common sense that you you try to apply wherever wherever you can with the resources you've got yeah it's just try my philosophy is you just you just want to be fair the riders want to have a fair you know give all four a fair opportunity to um do their job on the track and look i've got riders who you know they, they might be unhappy with the decision here and there but if they've got respect for you and you can, uh, I've got respect for them. It's usually at the end of the night, it goes by and you, you know, you see them the next meeting without any, you know, any crosswords or, or sort of fallout from it. Um, yeah, it can be a thankless task. It's not easy. Um, I think, you know, you know the score when you become a referee, you're, um, you're kind of either not mentioned or you are mentioned when something goes wrong. Um, so you kind of only really get talked about when when it's a negative negative concept almost. Um, but I think um, it's nice to come on here and just show that we are, in, in the name of the podcast, we are human. Uh, I've got, you've probably seen, through BSN, you've probably seen quite a lot more this year and the... They're a good bunch of people, the referees. Everyone's come from being a, a fan of Speedway in some way. Um, everyone puts a lot of effort into doing the job to the best of their ability. And I think, um, yeah, there's mistakes. There is in every sport, but the number of mistakes, I personally, I think is relatively low. And we have, yeah, we have a good, bu- definitely a good bunch of people who put a lot of effort into refereeing in this country. Craig Aykroyd, a British and FIM Speedway referee, is with us. And in the next part of No Breaks, No Fear, he's going to tell us about his dream Speedway meeting next. Welcome back to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan. Don't forget to check out some of our previous episodes as well. Recent ones from this current series, we chatted with Alan Rossiter, Roscoe, about life in charge of the Coventry Bees, the Swindon Robins, and of course winning titles as a rider as well with the Pool Pirates and much more besides. On the subject of the Pool Pirates, the previous guest in the episode prior to this one is Ben Cook, who's just been installed as the new captain of the Pool Pirates 
in 2024. Check those out and many, many more episodes as well. The uh, back catalogue of Humans of Speedway available now. Right now, our guest is Craig Ackroyd, a referee in British Speedway, but also on the world scene as well and one of the Speedway Grand Prix refs. And um, I'm going to do a bit of a, um, a, a slightly slimmed down version of, of the Dream Speedway meeting, really, because it's hard to put you on the spot as to, to which referee you would choose. Uh, but uh, for you, if you were choosing your all-time one to seven, Craig Ackroyd, and you presided over many great riders over various uh, various years, and I guess if you haven't uh, presided over them, maybe your dad has. Um, who would be in your all-time one to seven, Craig? So I go with riders who I've seen race myself, but not riders who are still racing who I'm refereeing now. I thought that was sort of a fair, you know, block in the middle. So first one I'd go with would be Eric Gunderson. For me, he was he was the guy who had his poster on my bedroom wall when I was um, growing up as a young grass track rider. Um, he won that world final at Bradford. That was the first world final I went to and saw live. Um, I think barring his accident, he would have gone on and had many more sort of uh, top level, level successes. So he'd be first on the list. Um, Sean Moran. As well, I think he was um, he's a rider because he was sort of northern-based, Sheffield, Bellevue. I saw a lot of him riding. And um, remember back to the 80s when there was the test series between um, England and America. And I think, you know, he did flamboyance of the riders. I, you know, he was one who I thought was was great. Probably one who people would say, you know, a, a, one of the ones who should have been a world champion who wasn't. Um, third one, Jason Crump, I think. Jason, um, he finished in the top three in the world, 10 years on the trot. I think to, to have that consistency at that level for so long, um, that was during the period of sort of, you could say Tony Ricardson had more world championships, but to finish top three every year for 10 years for me is, it's, you know, an unbelievable level of consistency. I think Bartos is now five years into being in the top three, so he could be he could be one who's uh, rivals that at some point. Next, I had Carl Stonia. Carl was one who sort of raced grass track with. I had his old leathers when I was racing. <laughs> I think Carl epitomised, you know, he um, he had a great career, but I think the time, you know, he had a... Um, you, you could say Sean Wilson the same at Sheffield, but Carl at Workington, you know, he was a, a town hero almost and then got himself into the GPs as a as a second division rider. So I think Carl was, you know, if he had a team, he's the type of man you'd want. When you say one to seven, you'd a team. So I'd say next, I'd say Jason Lyons. I'd say Jason Lyons, you know, is the, the ultimate ultra-reliable club man. Perhaps didn't have as much success at world championship level as what he could have done. But I think he did win a couple of World Cups as, you know, a, a valuable team member for Australia. Um, nice guy, Jason. So, you know, they, like you say, the ultra-reliable club man and a great professional rider. And then the two reserves almost. I've got Gary Stead. Gary is another one who I rode, who rode in the grass track club with me. Um, I think Gary at points, you know, he was part of that team, that fantastic team that won the league at Bradford and they had a really good team. And um, Gary was sort of on the, you know, on the verge of being, you know, world-class rider and that's you know it's 
fantastic rider on his day. And sadly, you know, he's paid a high price to the sport with his injury. Um, but he's a such a great guy and he's someone who, who, considering what's happened to him, he never has a negative word to say, such a positive person. So, um, yeah, Gary would have to be in the team. And then last but not least, by any stretch, uh, Stuart Robson. Uh, Stuart, again, he's one who I rode with. And I think you have to have a balanced team. And Stuart was one who he rode quite a few good few seasons at, you know, Coventry top level. I think he was second in the British final or third at one point. Um, but again, you know, uh, what you would say is, you know, a, a ultra-reliable club rider and, you know, in, at his time in the second division at, you know, places like um, Newcastle, whereas Rodeo was, you know, top drawer in that division and and in the top division for a number of years as well. Could fill it all full of um, world champions, but as the sport's made up in, you know, it's made up of riders of all all levels and there's some great, you know, great servants to the sport. If you're going to pick a, a track, uh, you know, for the, uh, to race on then, is there a particular track that you love watching the racing on? Um, I think it's got to be Bellevue at the minute. You know, Bellevue when it's um, when it's when it's on point is is you know fantastic. It's one of, it, people say it's one of the best tracks in the world, and it it definitely is. Um, but then we have we've got quite a few. We're lucky. I mean, Scunthorpe on its day is you could have fantastic racing at Scunthorpe. Red car Glasgow this year has produced some fantastic racing. We've got you know we have got we have got some great tracks up and down the country. And which stadium do you like being in the best for the atmosphere? You've 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 refereed in all of them, I guess. Now the big ones. Polish stadiums when when it's going well for a Polish rider, the atmosphere can be can be electric. Um, refereeing in Cardiff was you know when when Ty Wuffenden came out and won a race, you could, I, you just couldn't you can't hear the bikes. All you can hear is the crowd, and that was that was special. But I think the sport in general, wherever you go in Britain, people are so passionate about the club, the team, and that's that's what makes it. You know. It, when people are having a go at me because they've excluded their rider, you don't mind when you know there's that passion about supporting your team. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you're going to pick one one actual team that existed for any reason, what what would that be? The Buxton team that won the treble in um, mid two thousands, two thousand and ten, maybe. And I think they had Nick Morris, Craig Cook. Charles Wright to say you know just out of those three two of those riders have gone on to be British champion another top Australian rider and I think for me that um what it would no disrespect but what you would say Buxton a small club winning the treble and having such good riders you know training those riders to basically go on and have great professional careers sort of it was uh, what that league was about to be honest yeah, absolutely, and some some great talent there have gone on to to big things, and um, a nice little virtual meeting there. I'm sure it would be great, and, and of course you're going to be refereeing it, so it's all good. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, Craig. It's been great chatting with you and finding out a little more about life in the box, and we look forward to seeing you presiding over some uh, some key meetings, no doubt, in British and World Speedway soon. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely see you next season when uh, we're around the tracks.
My thanks to Craig Ackroyd, British and FIM Speedway referee, and hope that you enjoyed that and found it interesting about uh, what goes on in the referee's box both uh, here and elsewhere around the world as well. Now, don't forget to check out some of the previous episodes of Humans of Speedway. There's many more for you to go at. Recent episodes include with Alan Rossiter and the Pool Pirates captain, Ben Cook. But going back further over time, we chatted with Danny King and Steve Worrell at the end of the previous season. Actually, Paul Bowen talking about electric speedway is actually one of the more downloaded episodes of the moment and um, people will look at electric speedway and go well it's not for me well it's not for you you're right it's not for you it's aimed at the kids and to get kids into speedway and into riding bikes and find out why you need not worry about whether there's a smell and noise or not Uh, that's uh, one of the previous episodes from uh, earlier in 2023 Justin Sedgman we chatted with Dave Rowe from Eurosport as well Gary and Leon Flint Adam Roynan Uh, All fairly recent episodes, and there's many more to go through as well. So uh, have a listen and fill your time wisely between now and the start of the next season. Plenty more episodes on the way through the course of the winter, uh, between now and when Speedway gets going again. And uh, don't forget to join us for the next episode, which is coming soon, with the one and only main Dane, Hans Nielsen. He's going to be on the next episode you're not going to want to miss that so like and subscribe so you don't miss it as soon as it arrives and thanks once again for listening to Humans of Speedway we'll see you again soon Sports Social Podcast Network